This is Meat and Poison with me, Andy. And me, Matt. And today we are talking about a great American writer, Mr. Ernest Hemingway. We are. Who would have been 121 today had he yeah. lived. He was born. 21st of July. He was born just at the very end of, of the last century, of century before last, of 1899. He was born and um, sadly decided to leave us of his own accord at, in 1962. Yeah. But nonetheless, I'm not going to dwell on that too much. No, nonetheless, definitely left his mark. I would say, um, absolutely famous, famous man. Really, I think for being being a manly man and a heavy drinker. And uh, Andy's going to explain quickly why we're drinking what we are. Yeah, we are drinking San Pellegrino and we just found out, I mean, when we were doing our research, obviously, we found out that the water was established in 1899. And this was a very symbolic uh, trip in Ernest Hemingway's well-traveled life. I think as he traveled uh, as a correspondent in... Oh, well, to Italy, you mean? To Italy, yeah. You so didn't it's, say Italy. I didn't. No, I didn't, but it's, oh, Ita it's Italian yeah. mineral water. It is. Yeah. So we've decided also that we um, were not going to drink heavily like Ernest did. Yeah, um, we didn't want to celebrate his alcoholism as it is part of the reason. Yes, I think that definitely. Sort of destroyed him um, towards the end. So we thought we'd stick on soft drinks today. Um, contrary to what we said last week. <laughs> yeah, we just did, decided that we'd bring some of the touch of the 19th uh, come early 20th century. Um, Itali Italian, he uh, fell in love with uh, an Italian woman who he married. He, the, that was his he first did. wife. He fell in love with an English nurse whilst he was convalescing in Milan. Yeah, um, so listen, good. if you remember in the Frida episode, we kind of announced that we were going to do an Ernest Hemingway episode and that neither of us had a firm enough opinion about him and that yeah. we were going to, we were sort of expecting, expecting it to be formed or changed. Has, has your opinion changed? And yeah, definitely. Research? Definitely. Um, I've actually, I really love researching this one. It's been really nice. And um, I mean, I like the other ones, but it's been a particular pleasure because uh, I've learned loads about him. But yeah, I had this opinion of him as kind of a, a real bully, a very unpleasant man, um, possibly a wife beater, uh, all of these sorts of things. Was that, that a thing? Maybe? I don't know. That was in my head. And I found very little evidence to support it. Um, His wife. I haven't <laughs> done years of research, so please feel free to correct me if there is a lot of evidence to support it. But in the, the limited sort of uh, time I've had, didn't find any evidence to support that, which is, was really a nice surprise. And actually, my opinion of him has changed from this guy's really an unpleasant bully and there's not much to redeem him to he's actually quite a heroic and tragic character. Um, absolutely heroic in terms of he decides, you know, he takes himself off to the First World War, even though his sight's too bad to be in the army. So he then goes and drives an ambulance, 
horrendous um, injuries very shortly after he arrives, which he survives luckily. Lots of heartbreak. He, you know, he then joins the the Spanish Civil War. Um, mm. So he's he's a heroic chap. He's also writing what I find personally great great literature. A lot of well, the ones I've read, I've really enjoyed. And um, yeah, really and pleasantly. Led a, and led an adventurous life. An adventurous guy throughout his life, because it wasn't just the pursuits of in terms of his journalism and how he was a, he wanted to be a hero and he wanted to live with a purpose but also bullfighting fishing and all yeah. the, all these manly sort of pursuits he wanted to be in although i think know, out and about and he never he wasn't like a sit at home kind of guy who no absolutely not i don't so. think and I, drank I think a lot but also was really productive yeah hugely if productive. you look at back at his career but he must have been writing drunk a large amount yeah, of time of because there's no way anyone could have produced the volume of literature that he did and drink the way that he did which is definitely very much supported by all of the research i've done that he was drinking from a really early age i think possibly probably not editing but drinking I, the first draft I think um, <laughs> Writing the first draft. Drinking Sorry, <laughs> this is really mineral water. Believe if you don't believe this. I think we found out that in in the course of our research that um, Ernest was an expat for yeah, a I great deal of his life. Something I liked about him a lot. This guy is a definite uh, a global citizen. Yeah. he's been lived in France, lived in Spain. As we said, he went to the Civil War. Um, well, that was because he was convalescing there. Really. Yeah, but still, he, he went was... there. He went there on a on a on a journalistic mission. Oh, to Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, this is why he ended up in in the hospital there. Oh, I thought that yeah. was a different time. I thought he got moved to Milan to convalesce. No, and he after. went a lot to even Rhineland, where we are, to the Ruhr on journalistic missions. He yeah, and then I mean, then he moved Friends to Cuba Cologne, as well. He Cuba. It's very, very well traveled and kind of we I think we bonded if we if yeah one I think anyone it. that that is uh, open to different cultures to, yeah. to exploring different living in different places is always someone of interest to me something def definitely we both feel comfortable with yeah I think that the, the fact that he traveled so much and lived also not just traveled but kind of lived in yeah. And, and learned these places. Yeah, he certainly didn't kind of just come and go. He, he yeah. stayed and stayed for a while. And also, you, we talked about it when we first started discussing Hemingway, if you remember, you said, well, most of his books are actually happening elsewhere, not in America. He's not, to me, even an American yeah. writer. So he, even his work kind it's of speaks true. for his It's very true for expatness. a great American writer. Very little of his work is based in the States. Sur surprising. What's the, where, the, where does the sun also rises take place? In Paris and Spain. And so then, um, for whom the Paris bell tolls, I think it's the worst it's also in war Spain. in Spain. Yeah. And uh, um, even a movable feast. It's we'll Paris, the old man in the sea is in Cuba. Yeah, actually there's very few I can think of. I don't know, I've never read any of his short stories, which I think... Um, I, sh I will do. From this, definitely from the back of this, I definitely an want to read more and of this. Definitely yeah. an interesting uh, point. A definitely an interesting yeah. point about him. So, true expat. Yeah, and I think definitely informs his writing in that mm. you, you, you get these, you know, the, the characters, the foreign characters are probably better developed than someone who might not have true um, experienced their culture. For example, the, the bullfighter in, in Sun Also yeah, Rises. Yeah. Um, they're not just 
caricatures or stereotypes. They are based on a deeper knowledge of culture. I think. Mm. Agree. I decided that I would, was going to concentrate on him as a writer. Um, it's much, a much more interesting aspect of his life. And I've managed to, my opinion has changed because I was going to be a bit slightly, maybe even more than slightly more negative yeah. than I am going to be. Uh, but also, and I've discovered something. In terms something, of his writing as well. In, term, in terms of his writing. Because you found new things that you enjoy. Found new things, but also kind of went back there and analyzed this with a much more mature mind now and looked at okay. it more. I looked at de uh, the details of his writing, some of the things that I, I never looked at seriously and maybe trusted somebody else's opinion instead of mine. So your experiences of him were when you were younger? Yeah, when I, when I started, I mean, when I, when I first read Hemingway, I think I was, do you want to lie, 18 or 19? And it wasn't, in my opinion, his greatest book, although probably his most awarded book, The Old Man and the Sea. We're going to talk about it in a few minutes. Mm. But I uh, definitely, in terms of my meat, I will say I may not like him as a writer. Some of the... One of his books I've discovered that I really like, but he's, he doesn't seem pretentious in any of his words. He's very true to his voice, to his style. Uh, there are no inessentials in his books. There are no sort of verbosity, no embellishments, no sentimentality. I, I appreciate that. I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I... As a writer, I prefer that to say Victor Girl. Are we going? Are we going <laughs> bashing the great French writers again? Let's not go down that route again. I'd rather read the <laughs> old man and the sea again. I'm just going to say there's a hell of a lot of Russian writers out there that I think could could get. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And then my poison, if I may. Yeah. It's probably. You know when you, even in the book, I'm not going to say the name yet, but even in the book, I'm. I was reading recently some of the manly pursuits I just can't can't care about this enough you know there, there's a lot of sort of macho about him not bully but kind of being a macho I don't know if you know that story we've probably heard the same thing when Fitzgerald helped him with his uh, the sun also rises and he put yeah. like a note uh, um, in at the beginning on the first page uh, saying uh, the sun also rises and then underneath, like your cock, if you still have one, a greater, great Gatsby, <laughs> written with the friendship of F.S. Fitzgerald. I'm just not interested in that. certainly not like a delicate couth man. I no, say, no, and um, yeah, and then I'm just in these, these like manly competition. I'm just I think one thing that I have developed a, a hypothesis. <laughs> I have a theory um, about this idea of manliness around yeah. him that I think the first... It, when, when he was contemporary, when he was writing in his own times, um, what was assumed to be As manliness... opposed to when he wasn't writing in his own times? No, I said, but I mean when people were receiving <laughs> his were, were consuming his work for the first time, yeah. so his okay. contemporaries. They were analysing it and taking these things um, to mean manliness. But I think his obsession is less with manliness and it's actually strength. And nowadays... We separate the two, whether it's, you know, in 1940, 1950, people would have been like, oh, well, it's a strong person, it's a manly person. I think, actually, his interest is not in manliness, his interest is in strength, because at a very young age, a lot of his is taken away from him, from this horrible um, 
injuries that he got during the, during the First World War. And, and when we, we get to the end of his life and we see the old man in the sea again, and this is really just a battle of strength, of, of, of wills, of physical strength. Mm. And that's at a time in his life when he's really almost lost all of his control over his own body and, yeah. and power. And I think it's been interpreted that these characters are all about manliness, but I don't think they are because I think they're about strength. I think that's his obsession. And um, yeah, I think he's kind of unfairly tarnished as maybe misogynistic in that terms. Um, but actually... Well, see, I've never heard about his women hating. Well, I don't think... Okay, maybe misogynistic is not the right word. What I mean is this obsession with, with manliness. I'm translating over, for some of the listeners. <laughs> this <laughs> obsession with manliness over being being better than femininess or femininity. And I, I don't yeah. think that's what he means. I think what he, he doesn't like or, you know, really has no time for is weakness, um, which doesn't necessarily make him a great person. Mm. Again, because I think, you <laughs> Not know, on board with that either. <laughs> but he, he, you know, he venerates the character, for example, in Sun Also Rises. You know, Lady Ashley is a strong woman. Yeah. She's making tough mental decisions um, to you know, and so being honest with herself, he's not against. Uh, he's not against a, a protagonist being a woman. Yeah, and he doesn't just kind of be like, "Oh, and she was just a woman in the room." Like he builds. It's very nineteenth century. Well. A lot of nineteenth uh, century literature's protagonists are women. Oh, with things like what, like Tess of the D'Urbervilles and well, Far from the Madding Crowd. Is that, is that Bath, Bathsheba? That's yeah, good but, I mean like. Yeah, Thackeray and Anna Karenina and lots yeah. of other That's true. great books. Um, We're not going to get into Anna, Anna Karenina, Karenina right now. Let's do it. <laughs> we need like a four-hour podcast. <laughs> we've tricked you. This, <laughs> this is actually a two-hour episode. On I'll talk about Anna Karenina in 20 years when I've had time to read it. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to talk about your favorite book in a second, but did you know the, um, the funny fact that the, his first fiction published wasn't actually a novel, it was a collection of short stories yeah. called In Our Time, a radio <laughs> program Dada. Oh, from on the Radio, radio 4, 4 by Melvin Bragg I that I'm get obsessed that with. If, you, if there's any one takeaway, if you want to tune into this episode and never tune, tune in again, that's fine with me as long as you listen to In Our Time by Melvin Bragg on Radio 4. And here's my, uh, <laughs> I am not a paid spokesperson. I wish I were. <laughs> Slightly obsessed. Um, right, so, but that. the first novel published was The Sun Also Rises. Tell us about why you like it so much. What's, what's uh, so special about that? I, I find his style very... <laughs> not a fan. Um, I find his style very interesting and it's, it's a very soothing style to be... It, it's easy to read, which I know sounds really kind of reductive, but it's... That's um, what it boils down to. It's something you can get into quite quickly and... Um, Next year, Enjoy I will tell you the about the tirade this man gave me after he finally finished Lolita. What? Because <laughs> okay, don't. I'm not a fan of an author, <laughs> no, and this this relates to him. I'm not a fan of an author who deliberately makes their books difficult to get oh, through. Oh, I can't wait for that just, episode. And oh. Hemingway does not do that. Hemingway is very accessible from, I think, from an adolescent age upwards. For anybody who and has he also, 200 words in their vocabulary. You disagree, but I think he's economical with his language in a way which brings a simple beauty to things. And 
Also, The Sun Also Rises is set at the beginning in Paris, and I think I read it about the time I was living there, and it was a joy because he, um, yeah, he really paints a wonderful picture of Paris and this, the kind of loose, because I think it's, it's, it's into, in between the walls, mm-hmm. and um, th- this kind of loose g- gay feeling, I think, is what they... they Used to they call it. Call, used to call it, yeah. Um, Meaning I don't know what else to... Happy. Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it, really. This... Joyful. This, well, it's kind of almost end of days Paris that's, that's just enjoying life just yeah. day by day. Cheerful, maybe. And he's, you know, just this group of gadabout drunks, really. Yeah. Um, that are enjoying the spoils of Paris. And there's just... There's some wonderful descriptions in it. There's a, there's a bit which always reminds me of a friend of mine who will remain nameless, but he describes Lady... We like to name names and then delete them. He describes Lady Ashley coming into her room when they, they've travelled to Spain, and he says she can make a mess um, that could only be made by someone who grew up with staff. And immediately, oh, without describing any of the room, you have this picture of disarray. And I think he's so clever in, in doing that. In just a very short sentence, you've already got a whole picture of the room. Do you know what? I, there's, there's just one thing... You, you said that I disagreed with the economical style because in my memory, and I used to, I think, do Hemingway at uni and I think I even remember one of his texts was at my final examination. And I remember just hating really? that bit because um, it's just not what I wanted to deal with because I wanted to shine and to show you know, that, how I love that literature. It, from a language point of view. Yeah, yeah, from a yeah. language point of view, I think. I don't remember what it was, but I, it, just for the life of me, but it was like, oh, why don't you give me like a, at least an author I love? Um, but anyway, and uh, I disagree uh, with the one notion that's very popular about him is that he writes in short sentences and doesn't, u- uh, doesn't use a lot of adjectives and adverbs. I was reading very, very specifically looking for those, and they were every second or third line. His sentences are very long and clunky. I disagree. His style is a lot of ends, hardly any commas, and a vocabulary of an intermediate learner. There are a lot of ands, I would say, but he uses a lot of short he, He's got a unique style. He's not copying anyone. He's very unique. It's, and quite, it's quite staccato, I think. But it's okay, it not, not short sentences. I mean, it's not a tall story, no, but uh, it's kind long of short, sentence. It's short clauses, then. Yeah, obviously, he doesn't know what a... He's p- not, you like know, a, he's not Dickens or whatever and, and spending 15 minutes to describe a blade of grass. It's kind of like... Yeah. A wet I'm not saying it's it's right or wrong. He's got his particular style. It's fine. I mean, he's he's got. I think his career stands for itself. But um, I'm be pleased. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that uh, why it's probably not particularly my style, but also it's kind of wrongly described. If it's not really mm. short sentences and no adjectives, he uses very simple adjectives. He wouldn't use like long-winded words yeah. of four, five, but six syllables. I think syllables. that's what it, what it means. I mean, you get the feeling <clears throat> of it. If you look at the text, you immediately see it. It's very lucid, I think. That's, uh, that's kind of my, my take on, on it. Um, but like, for example, there's a beautiful quote, and this also ties into my feeling that his, his manliness is, or this, this opinion of him is this kind of gruff manliness. It's not necessarily true, because he writes about love so beautifully, and I used to quote 
from him in the best man speech I did from, at my brother's from, wedding. From whom the bell tolls. From, yeah, from, from whom the bell to tolls. And he, he writes, what you have is the most important thing that can happen to a human being. There will always be people who say it does not exist because they cannot have it. But I tell you now that it is true and that you have it and that you are lucky. So I agree with you that, that it is true and that you have it and that you are lucky is a long sentence, but it feels short. And I think that's what people are saying about mm. him, that he's getting to the point no, that was quite a beautiful, quickly. That was a beautiful one. Shall we talk about uh, the most questionable book of all times? <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean the most questionable Nobel Prize winning book yes. of all times? It's, yeah, it's, this is the first, so we're talking about the old man and the sea, which is very think, old. His very um, last novel or no. one of? Mm, mm, He's, it's, it's right at the end. You know, you know what's unfair about that? He wrote it in the course of eight weeks. Yeah, okay. People, if anybody knew that winning an, a Nobel Prize for anything <laughs> was possible, weeks. much less literature, uh, in, in the course of eight weeks, people would be literally setting their lives on that mission. But I think what you mentioned earlier before we talk about the book is interesting that the Nobel Prize was specifically given for that yeah. book and not for his collection which of works. Which I am pissed Which is off not about. that usual. Not. The, I don't want to say, I don't know the statistics, but it's often people get, just I think more often author, people, yeah. people get And uh, I wonder why that Nobel was chosen. Is it because there was also a lot of stuff they, they, they considered not worthy of their... Do you think that it was just like a, a dry year? <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, that one. <laughs> no one's written anything. <laughs> Maud, what have you got? Oh, well, yeah, oh, all I right. Well, you that. If, if that, that's the case, I am on board. It's probably the best book of like... 1953, 1954. When was that? No, I just wonder, is it a bit of a slap in the face that they were like, hey, you've won the Nobel Prize. No, not for the other books. Just, just that one. <laughs> uh, was he, what, what was the speech about? Was he, uh, oh, were he, yeah, in was he grateful? Well, in his speeches where he says that as great as writers become more popular, they get worse. And that as they grow in notoriety and whatever, their, their, their talent deteriorates and their, their um, attention to detail deteriorates because they become something else, because they become celebrities, um, mm. I think is what he's trying to say. So he was basically trying to tell the world that he is too famous to write well. He was definitely well. grateful. I mean, he was more grateful than buddy Bob Dylan, not turning up. Uh, All right. Well, um, you apparently you liked it, right? Old Man in the Sea. Yes, I did. I very much enjoyed it. I read it first. That's his meat. It's the first ever book I read of his. First ever book I read. Uh, no, first. The only one. First Hemingway <laughs> I read. Um, and I was 19 in, in Cuba. Oh, me so too. Wasn't it was, in Cuba. Um, was very apt and I have to say when I first started it I very stupidly thought I was like oh this guy maybe wrote this in a different language first and has been badly translated into English because I was very confused that this massively famous book was written in this really bizarre to me at the time style you know it wasn't lyrical it wasn't really flowing it's very doesn't it happen to you sometimes short sentences sometimes, where I think just sometimes hmm? what that you think, how did it get through the editor? How did this get that? Effect? Yeah, it does <laughs> sometimes. But particularly for Hemingway, I hadn't expected it. And then I actually grew to really, to love it. It's, it I found it a really enjoyable um, style to read. 
I think it's a great story. It's very short, um, so it's, a, it's which is always a. I'm always a fan of a short book that I can read quickly. It's very Nobel Prize worthy. <laughs> but you hated it. Hated it. Absolutely Strong. hated it. Strong. No, I was reading with um, with open eyes, and I think my jaw. Back in the day, there was no Uber, but if I was reading it now, my jaw would have got into an Uber and. <laughs> got home because <laughs> I was so <laughs> perplexed by how that it wasn't good I just couldn't see one bit why this I actually found it a little bit pretentious back in the day but I I don't want to but the style or the content no just the content just like how kind of um brutally honest and earnest and I guess earnest is the name and yeah. serious he was about every single line i'm like give me give me a joke that's what i mean i mean it's it's meaty writing isn't it yeah. it's not give me a joke is that what you well th- i mean we're coming well okay there, there's a lot of humor in the book okay there is quite a lot of humor in the book um if you can understand what the bloody hell he's talking about <laughs> <laughs> okay moving on <laughs> moving on let's just, let's keep the train moving um what is your you have you do have a book you enjoy it. listen i was a hater but now i'm not i have discovered a book called a movable feast yeah and it's his latest it's not fiction but reads like fiction uh it's this very entertaining memoir of his years in paris i mean i think some people in it would rather say it was fiction wouldn't they would rather, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's not very nice about. Um, he's. Who's he not very nice? Um, Jermaine Greer, is it? Who? No, not Jermaine Greer. <laughs> is this a, some <laughs> <a> random name? <laughs> no, what about that writer? Not Jermaine Greer, oh my god, she's really fun. Um, who did not I Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein is who I'm trying he's to say. He's actually okay about her. He, he's not, not nice about her. <laughs> Just imagine what? Jermaine Greer in <laughs> Paris with all of these I people. You were losing it. <laughs> um, Sorry, no, it's Jermaine. it's a very entertaining book. It, it reads like fiction, very evocative. I think that he he is, um, if, if nothing if nothing else, he's great at evoking uh, places, sites, you know, memorabilia, streets. You're reading some of it just a little bit too much because he literally names every street he goes to. And because yeah. I've never lived in Paris, to me, it's all, it's not Greek, but it's just, I don't see what's happening. So to me, just a little bit too much because, you know, I know another, of another writer who, whom I absolutely adore, who names the streets, but it's just not too much because he will name yeah. four streets in the course of a line. But I think that's because A Movable Feast is a work of non-fiction. Yes. So he's not he trying wants... to draw you into a world that he's creating. He's trying to place things factually but where he, they are. But again, it does it, it's kind of in the middle of things because it's also, it doesn't read like a, a journal or anything because the dialogues are very, um, they're kind of they're edited yeah. and you can tell that he's working on characters here. Do you think this is the first example of edited reality? Is <sighs> Hemingway, yeah. a forebearer to like the hills and made <laughs> in Chelsea. <laughs> but I definitely enjoyed that book a lot. And I've got a quote from it, mm-hmm. which will lead us nicely to our next topic. Sure. And I have a question for you, um, which I hope that you've had enough time to think about. So it starts with 
uh, a quote. If you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. And if I know anything about you, is that you lived in Paris as a young man. Yes, so, I mean... What one? Younger than now, <laughs> if you can believe. <laughs> Is that possible? Um, I did. I lived in Paris for a, a year, a bit more than a year, I think, when I was 21. Um, Paris has been a lifelong love of mine. I was lucky enough to be taken there a lot when I was younger, but my parents also loved the city. And um, living there was an absolute dream. I found it just to be the most perfect city. For me, it's the most perfect size of a city. You can walk one side to the other in the course of a day and you, it's like a collection of villages. Well, when I was living there, I, um, you know, I lived there 13 years ago, so maybe it's a bit different, but for me, it would, mm. you have all these wonderful arrondissements. Oh, around Hemingway's age. Uh, yeah, you I was 21 when I, yeah. when, I, when I lived there. I mean, Hemingway lived there a lot, didn't he? Yeah, but he moved there when he was 18, 19, so um, around that yeah, age. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe 20, yeah. Um, I totally agree with him. It does stay with you, but it had always been a love of mine. But I, I mean, his Paris, I think, is, is an interesting thing. Like this cultural... Not mine, Hemingway's. Um, I have yes. no Paris <laughs> of my own. Hemingway's Paris with, with, with Fitzgerald there, with, with not Jermaine Greer, Gertrude Stein. Yeah. <laughs> um, with all of these artists and this, this, this cultural soup that's going on there and all of these people have moved there and the best thing is that I, when I was researching this you know the reason Hemingway moved there was because it was cheap and you think god yeah. I wish nowadays that was the case um, and we were talking weren't we about cultural. where has that occurred again in history these cultural hubs where you yeah. get these this collection of, of, of artists creating huge amounts of famous work yeah, we were talking about that, and obviously in the 20s it was Paris, I think in the 30s it was Berlin, a little bit, uh, part, parts of it, um, I think, pre-war Berlin, and then uh, it moved slowly to London, I guess. Um, I think so London in the 60s, 60s you can look at like uh, King's Road. 70s, and I think you have London just a little bit more. So yeah. There's a lot of... Uh, well, I, everybody says that, that's like famous, isn't it? Anybody that knows that yeah. experience knows that the 60s actually I'm happened in the 70s. thinking of sort of Sex Pistols and, and <laughs> yeah, some of the great... I think great... And the Mary Quantum and Bieber and stuff like that, yeah. um, from a fashion point of view, that's all happening late 60s, early 70s. And mm, then... Not Justin Bieber. Not Justin Bieber. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. <laughs> I think maybe it's this the episode, same, but, This episode know. is not in the making. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, and then New York... Then New York, New York end of the 70s with Studio 54 with the Chelsea yeah. Hotel, even earlier, I think. How do they happen? It's, it's such an, it's, it's such a weird phenomenon that these, like, does everybody just get a message? It's like, guys, we're going to New York now. Well, I'm actually, because you had an assumption that it was about accommodation prices and it, it may as well be that, but also it has to be, um, an attractive place. It yeah. has to be an internationally attractive place for people. So it can't just be, you know, property price. Obviously, there are. Well, I, I, I mean, I came on that because I think now this could never happen in Paris now because no impoverished writer could live anywhere near the center of Paris. 
But you were saying that possibly maybe the new version of the cultural hubs are, are the tech, tech hubs. The tech hubs. Because yeah. I was thinking, you know, Paris is now obviously the s startup, together with Berlin, but I think that Paris mm. is just a little bit more because of the, the concentration of money. Uh, startup hubs and technological hub, and we have the Silicon Valley, uh, which are today's reflections on where the world is thinking, where the world is going, because it's it just wasn't in the twenties. It just wasn't. But it's not art. It's it's not. I'm not just. I'm not saying it's cultural hubs. I'm just saying that it's it kind of maybe something that's moving the world that is much more um, on the agenda today than say um, you know writing and talking about inspirational um, stuff and how to paint and what new styles. I think that artists are much more even isolated today and they create in yeah. their own environments and, and then they but meet, do you think meet that's up because, at because people are pushed out of towns in these hubs because of rents and stuff. Yeah. Because, yeah. There's a different kind of expectation of what living standards are. I think that but everybody I, I, wants to make money today as these, an artist. These people also, artists maybe need other artists around them to feed off and to... Absolutely. I, and I and, and, and to inspire and to, to keep people going. And I think there seem to be less and less places in Europe that are able to offer that, where you've got a, a city with enough life going on to, to draw inspiration from and where people can live together. Why well, we we've move? come to um, a conclusion about a cultural hub today, because we've kind of touched, about, touched on, upon Germany, and uh, we think it may be Berlin today. Yeah, because it's an affordable big city. Um, I mean, it's not Paris in the 20s. I don't think that Picasso's and Hemingway's and Joyce's and Fitzgerald's are living in Berlin. I may be wrong and I hope I am. I just don't know about uh, enough about that. But a lot of the people, you know, a lot of the people well, that we, said, we yeah, kind a lot of know anyone that I knew sort of the cultural scene even of London have moved. Fashion, a lot of people moved there um, a few years ago. Yeah. I don't know if it's becoming a little, if it's almost past its moment now. Because it's being gentrified like this yeah. tomorrow. Because I mean, when I was, before I left London, there was sort of an area of London, Dorston, and, and that was really becoming um, the place where everyone moved because other parts of East London were too expensive. Now that's already passed it because <clears throat> already people saw it and like the rents went up. Um, Berlin actually brought in its own new laws, I think, to mm. protect renters again um, to stop that happening. But there are, there are definitely areas of Berlin that I think five, six years ago were super trendy and now are kind of gentrified and the, oh, the hardcore... I I was cool a kid artist some point already in my on. life moving to Berlin and I had mm. six full months and trust me I was trying pretty regularly but it wasn't you know it was slim pickings yeah really really slim pickings and mm. I was I could pay not a like a student's so do you think um, <laughs> do you think uh, Hemingway would have been in Berlin Instead of Paris, would would Hemingway or Gatsby have been? I think he would have been uh, Gatsby. Anyway, <laughs> from Gatsby. Names, right? <laughs> uh, do you think Hemingway is a fictional char character? <laughs> I think he would have been. He would be anywhere where the the inspiration where the, where would the booze take was. him. Where the booze, <laughs> where the cheap booze was. <laughs> um, so I think it's not. I mean, Paris is not 
um, too shabby to be because even no I'm not saying that. I'm just <laughs> saying no I'm, I'm just saying that he also loved the food and the atmosphere and everything it's a, Berlin is also very very special you have to love the shabby chic you have to love uh, the weather there. oh I see it's, what you mean yeah I think even as a pauper in Paris um, but yeah. I don't think he necessarily cared about that because no, I mean I it's so he, interesting he I think maybe he would have gone to Berlin I don't think the Fitzgeralds would have been there because no, they were I love too, they were a bit, they were the difference in their style they? when yeah well yeah. they didn't have any money left but yes they they, yeah. they liked the finer things but I find it so weird you know because Hemingway is <laughs> champagne indeed Hemingway is counted in the jazz age authors but I I don't think I would classify or characterize any of his writing as just imagining Fitzgerald in a German kneipe <laughs> <laughs> with a stein <laughs> drinking. And a tailcoat on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it would have, no, I, I don't think they would have gone down there. I think Hemingway would have, would have been well up for it. To be yeah. Honest. He'd no, be no, like he a member of the local shooting enough. club and uh, hunting boar in the Black Forest or whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm aware it's nowhere near Berlin. <laughs> Do you have some recommendations yeah we, we have to um Hemingway and um perhaps Berlin you know Berlin very well yeah I'm a great lover of Berlin if you have Paris I have just a tiny bit of Berlin I'm gonna so. okay well shall I start then yeah you can I do would, we, we're gonna wrap up on recommendations as usual yeah um I mean for Hemingway I definitely I've I've only as I say I've only read a handful of his books I think for me if you want to start somewhere I'd start at the end Old Man and the Sea, where I did... Um, Not right at the end. Well, okay, near the end. Um, his style's already quite developed and quite strong there, and so I think you'd know quite quickly if it's a style you're going to get along with and um, if you would enjoy some of his other longer books. Because The Old Man and the Sea, you can get through in a, in a, in a weekend, really, and it's, mm. um, it's worth it. Well, the Nobel Committee thought so. so. But what about and your recommendation... Oh, for Paris, in, yes. Yeah, I was going to suggest something for Paris. Paris because it's very prevalent in a lot of his work. Um, would be Canal Saint-Martin and that area, which is in the 10th arrondissement. It's just a little bit outside of the Marais and Bastille where a lot of tourists are. So it's kind of a little bit more local, but it's still, it, it's such a wonderful area. Um, it's the canal there. And there's one particular, if you want somewhere to start, I would suggest Hotel du Nord is directly by the hotel, by wow. the canal. Um, Are you a paid paid spokesperson? No, I'm just, I just I've had many a fun afternoon there, and then from there you can explore. There's a great pizzeria near to the canal where you can get. They give you a balloon and you go and sit on the canal and they bring your pizza to you. And <laughs> it's, just, it's super cute. Um, I don't know if that place is still open. That was going ten years ago. But that, that was thirteen years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting with my yeah. balloon. <laughs> balloon is still there. Um, what about you? Um, well, I'm definitely going to recommend a movable feast. This is something that um, I've discovered through my research and I really loved it. And uh, it's a very, very evocative memoir. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And um, I think it's maybe one of his books that I might like. Um, might like. Well, as in I would go back to it. I definitely yeah. would go because I like going back to books, and it's it's one of the ones I didn't, definitely didn't put it down. And then for Berlin, it would be um, Berlin is tricky because there's no particular cafe or bar or street that I like to go back to. There are so many places that I've I've been to that I like to revisit. 
there's this one um, spot in Berlin called Tempelhof Park, which was built as an airport to perform that function, which it didn't end up performing, but it completely stayed there. So the airport is there, all the runways are there, but it's become a huge park for people to enjoy themselves. To I just get with Berlin and airport. Yeah. Like, can they never get one? That's <laughs> true, just that's sort true. it out. Uh, it's, it's quite bitter. <laughs> but this one, this one is truly beautiful. Um, and, um, you know, if, you, if you're ever there and the sun is shining and it's good weather, uh, go there. Definitely go there. You will have the, the time of your life. It's, it's truly, truly beautiful and you can walk there nearly the whole day. It's, it's a huge huge uh, place. And we'll put the address. We'll put, obviously, we'll put the in uh, recommendations in, in the description mm -hmm. below. And next time we um, talk about... We're doing uh, East Saint Laurent. Um, the episode is on the 1st of August. 1st of August is the next one. Um, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about what his life in Morocco from an expat point of view. Well, he wasn't an expat there really, but... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, his legacy to the fashion industry, his work, his inspirations, his collaborations with artists, a um, lot of stuff to talk about, I think. So we're looking forward to that one. Need to decide what to drink because we're not doing water every time, I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't just my idea. I didn't have to sell that too hard. <laughs> um, yeah, so I hope you join us then. We're looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you very much for watching and listening. This has been Meet and Poison. Goodbye. Bye.